The book of Ecclesiastes was penned by a man who lived passionately. And if, if you go through the book of Ecclesiastes the way that we have, you're going to notice that this man, this godly man, suffered with dark moods of depression and sometimes meaninglessness that resulted from his passionate philosophical pursuit. But I will say one thing about Solomon, an observation of his life, idle he was not. Focused. Uh, the clock of life was ticking and he was filling the unforgiving moment with 60 seconds of distance run. So as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes the way that we have from his philosophical inquiry that you find him consistently trying to figure out what is, what is this thing called life all about, to chapter 2 brings us to him compiling Proverbs and all of his acquisition, all of the accomplishments of his life he talked about, uh, to leading the kingdom of Israel. And Solomon was a man who extracted from the bone of life the marrow of meaning. He was digging and trying to figure it out. So the verse that I'm going to read to you today is, I think is important to, to our series on Ecclesiastes because it summarized his approach, his, his life view, his intensity, if you will, his, his uh, focus on what life was really all about. And, and my further prayer this morning for the church would be that this verse, his mentality, would become our mentality. The way he viewed life, the way he... I just like this action verb, the way he attacked life, if you will. Attacked life. You're going to have to slide forward on your purple chair just a little bit. The way he attacked life. He didn't just let life happen to him. He was aggressive. I like that word too, in case you're wondering. He was aggressive about life. and uh, So this one verse, I think, is reflective in many ways in summary of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Remember, the entire book of Ecclesiastes, the essentials, the most important, if you boil life down in a Bunsen burner and say, what are the, some primary life lessons? We call it the life code. This would be one verse that probably catapulted Solomon into the acquisition of the things that he had, but more importantly, him figuring out what life is all about. Are you ready? Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse number 10. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with thy might. And Solomon says this, again, reflective of our, our study on Ecclesiastes. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. And extracting out of Ecclesiastes, we have a biblical diamond. We have this beautiful phrase. We have this beautiful scripture that maybe is put on placards in our homes. It's something that's easily and oft quoted. It's something we think about very often. It's something that comes up in a church context and church setting. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. He's saying that you and I only have one life to live. And under the sun, this life that we live, it matters. This life that God gifted you with, this life that you have, this thing that's been given to you and presented to you from God Almighty to yourself, it is a gift. This thing called life is a gift. And what we do with this gift that God has given us is our gift back to him. 
And I would say this, God wants us to do something with our life. God wants our li- to ma- us to make our lives count, that our lives would be of consequence. So the eternal value that we see coupled with the brevity of life compounds the pressure to make this life that we live count. Someone said in Jesus' name. Can you pray together with me that the Lord will bless his word to our hearts today? Jesus, thank you so much. Hallelujah. We're here, oh God. We've experienced your, your presence, Lord, and your power as we've worshiped. We pray the word of God would speak to us. I pray more than just speak to us. I pray that it would challenge us, oh God. Bring your best out of our lives. Help us to become and to do and to fulfill the will of God for our own individual lives, Lord, and to do what you would have us to do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. His name was Tim. He grew up in a little town in Raysville, Louisiana. His mother married a guy when he was a year old who he always thought was his dad. When he was in the fourth grade, his mom and who he thought was his dad split up. So one day when he was 11 years old, he was going through his mother's closet looking for Christmas presents, and he came across his own personal birth certificate, uh, which had all of his life information on it, and he found out to his surprise who his real father was. Being a young man loving baseball, when he looked at the birth certificate, he was very, very surprised. And he even had a baseball card of the famous and popular pitching star of the Philadelphia Phillies, who he found out later was his biological father. His dad's name, this professional ball player's name, was Tug McGraw. His story was a very unique one of getting to know someone. Tim had a talent for country music and began the meteoric rise in country music circles. He found out that his father, Tug, was going to die. He got sick in March and died in January at 59 years of age. There's a song that he found along these times in October, November, just before his father passed away. And much about this song paralleled what he was going through in life at the time. The song is about somebody getting diagnosed with an illness and getting sick. It's also a life-affirming kind of song. It talks about living life to the fullest. And I think we can all appreciate a song like that, at least I do. That's what the song talks about. And the relationship that he had with his father that they had been disconnected is what inspired this song that became a very strong country hit. His father died shortly thereafter. And here's the song that Tim sang. He said, I was in my early 40s with a lot of life before me when a moment came that stopped me on a dime. And I spent most of the next days looking at the x-rays, talking about the options, and talking about sweet time. I asked him when it sank in that this might really be the real end, how it hits you when you get that kind of news. Man, what do you do? And he said, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. He said, and I lived deeper, and I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you're dying. The rest of the song says, he said, I was finally the husband that most of the time I wasn't. I became a friend, a friend like uh, to have, and all of a sudden going fishing wasn't such fishing. Let me say it country-wise. Going fishing wasn't such an imposition. 
And I went three times that year, I lost my dad. Well, I finally read the good book and I took a good long hard look at what I'd do if I could do it all again. And then I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. And I loved deeper and I spoke sweeter and I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you're dying. Like tomorrow was a gift and you got eternity to think about. What'd you do with it? What did you do with it? And then he ends the song with, what did I do with it? What would I do with it? And the famous song is, live like you're dying. And my message title this morning is, live like you're dying. I think we ought to thank God for the wonderful gift of life that he has given us. What a gift that God has given us. This brief moments of time that we can share together on planet earth is a gift that comes from God. And the one thing that Ecclesiastes, I think, is trying to get through to us, all through the, 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 the words of this sage and this wise man, is that you have one shot at this thing, folks. You've got one chance at this thing called life. No matter how brief or how long it is, it may be short for some and longer for others, but in the great big picture, it's really not all that long. But to think that God breathed into us the breath of life and gave us an opportunity to live this thing called life. And I want to remind somebody here today that it is a gift. The gift of life that you have, if you have health in your body and breath in your lungs this morning, you have a gift that God has given you. And I, I, I hope the Lord will talk to us today that the gift that has been given us uh, must, by the grace of God, be stewarded in such a way that we recognize something precious has been given to us. Uh, and I want to use it. Uh, and I want it to be used for the glory of God in my life. And I want to make something out of my life. Uh, and I don't want to waste this precious gift uh, that's been given to me that is called life. So I'm going to preach about passion for a little while this morning. Come on, somebody. You got to live like you're dying. This precious life ought to be lived with passion. Passion should be our life posture. Spin your head and look at your neighbor and say, you got to have passion in your life. Passion, passion, passion. And some of you are like, I've been waiting for somebody to say that. Passion, zest, zeal, gusto, drive, determination, abandon, passion. Passion rules. Passion trumps every other card in the deck. Passion outperforms intelligence, brilliance, natural ability, charisma, and even star-studded personality. If given the choice, I would choose passion over every and any other quality in life because passion wins. Passion exceeds. Passion triumphs. Passion looks at the impossible and says, how? Tepid commitment says, can we? Passion says, how can we? 
Passion makes a way. Passion jumps through a window if there's no open door. Passion does not seek the path of least resistance. Passion sprints uphill, swims upstream, and runs against the wind. Passion pushes. Passion tries. Passion innovates. Passion motivates. Passion pushes the envelope of possibility. It's passion that climbs Everest. It's passion that swims the English Channel. It's passion that circumnavigates the globe. It's passion that invents vaccines, that wins the Olympics. And I would go far as to even say that it's passion that builds churches passion wins souls passion latches on to Jesus passion says I've got this thing called life and I'm gonna make something out of it passion prays Passion makes the decision to contribute to the cause. Passion feeds the hungry and clothes the naked. Passion cries out to a lost soul. Passion, if it can't find a door, will leap over a wall. Passion tackles a problem. Passion seeks answers. Passion does not give up. It's the combustion motor that continually fires to catapult you into your spiritual fast lane. And I will go a little farther to say this, that revival is attracted to passion. If we're going to be a revival church, I'll tell you what God's looking for. He's looking for some passionate people. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the earth that he might find someone whose heart is climbed toward him. God's looking for somebody that's got some fire in their belly. Come on, some passion in their blood. God's looking for people that have passion. Because I'll go as far as to say this, that what burns in your belly is going to be what determines where you go in life and how successful that you are. Talent doesn't necessarily predicate your victory. It's not even necessarily smarts alone that will bring victory to your life. But passion will produce self-education. Passion will help you to grow. Passion will help you to master the essential skills needed for what you are passionate about. Passion seeks answers to life's pertinent Questions. I'm preaching about passion. Live like you're dying. I heard about this guy. I heard about him. I was listening to a book last year called The Queen of Cotway. And uh, in Uganda, there's a chess champion, a little girl that was raised in absolute, complete, and total poverty. And against all the odds, she becomes this amazing chess champion from Uganda. And in that book, I, I, I heard about this guy, and his name is going to ring in your head as soon as you hear it, and his name is Akibua. So if we've got any pregnant folks in the house today and you're looking for a name, Akibua. Akibua was a runner. He was a tremendous runner, came from the most poverty-stricken nation almost in the world. And in 1972, after only one international competition, Aki Bua arrived at the Summer Olympics in Munich, Germany. His opposition in the 400-meter hurdles included Dave Hemry of Britain, the world record holder and defending Olympic champion, Ralph Mann, an American. His only pair of running shoes that Aki Bua had because the poverty in his life was a two-year-old pair of shoes that had missing spikes on the bottom of them. He, he didn't have, you know, what everybody else had. He didn't have name notoriety and recognition. He didn't have the best equipment. All he had was a passion. But he was, in many senses, built ideally to run. He was six foot two inches, 170 pounds. 
And Akibua trained with frightening intensity. He, in the six months before the Olympics, his training had included wearing a vest weighed with 25 pounds and lead as he run 1,500 meters over five hurdles that were 42 inches high. The hurdles for his race were only 36 inches, but he jumped over 42-inch hurdles with 25 pounds upon him because there was something that was pulsating in Akibua's heart, that he had the heart of a champion. He didn't come from riches. He didn't maybe have uh, native talent in many ways, but he had a he had a passion inside of his heart that said, I've got this goal and I've got this drive and I want to accomplish something in my life. When he went out in that race, he had the worst lane that a person could possibly have running the hurdles. He had the inside lane. He had busted up and broken down shoes, uh, didn't have enough spikes in them. Uh, and he had the weirdest running gait that you ever saw. But when he jumped out of those gates and he began to run that race, he ran a world record 47.82 seconds despite running on the inside lane. And he became a world champion Olympian. Akibua, Akibua. The unique thing about Akibua, though, that I want to I want to talk about today is that Akibua became like a national symbol in a very poor nation. He was the first one, and now if you watch the Olympics, it happens all the time, but he took, he, he was so excited, he grabbed his little Ugandan flag and began to run around that Olympic stadium carrying his flag, and now all, that's what happened when most races are won now. He started that trend. He came out of poverty. He had so little, but the one thing that he had was a driving, thriving passion within that said, I've maybe got one gift, I got one shot. I got one talent. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give myself to it. I'm going to focus on it. I'm going to train. I'm going to give what I have. And, and, and that's what produces champions is the heart of a champion. Someone that has passion within because you can't hold someone like that down that has a passion within. He was a man that embodied running. He embodied it. It's, it's who he was. The unique thing that this poor, poverty-stricken nation, when they found in this man a champion, they found a hero, they found somebody that they could at least believe in and be excited about. And so when the kids on the playground would start running, they didn't say in African that they were running. They would say, they're going to Akibua. And this happened for generations and decades. And if you go to Uganda today, the kids will say to one another, let's Akibua, let's Akibua. They don't even anymore know who Akibua is as a runner. He's long forgotten, but his name has now become synonymous with running because he, is, he was passionate about what he was doing. Akibua. So it begs the question on this Sunday morning to this wonderful, beautiful Christian congregation gathered in this very comfortable place on a Sunday morning. It begs the question of the Christian church. What kind of church are we going to be? It begs the question of every child of God. What kind of Christian are you going to be? What kind of child of God are you going to be? Are we going to be weak? 
Are we going to be tepid? Are we going to be lukewarm? Or have we made up our mind that we have got the greatest thing this side of heaven in our life? We've got the greatest cause, the greatest God, the greatest help, the greatest strength, anything we could ever want and need in life we've got on behalf of our God. And we've got one race to run. And we're making up our mind we're going to run this race with focus and intensity. Oh, yes, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. I don't want to be a tepid, lukewarm Christian. I want to be on fire. I met with somebody yesterday that strayed from the faith and strayed from their walk with God. And my simple consultation with them was, they said, you know, they said I was, there was a time when I was on fire, but I'm not on fire anymore. I said, well, you know, one way that you get on fire is you get around other people that are on fire. And I said, you can talk about it and you can strategize and you can do all that stuff and that's fine and good. I said, but if I light my desk on fire right now, you know what's going to happen? You're going to feel the effects of that fire. Your clothes are going to get singed. Your face is going to get hot. Probably those walls are going to catch on fire because when you get around people that are on fire, you can't help but their warmth and their heat to rub off on you. I'm preaching to the church on this Sunday morning. May this be an on fire church. We're not a Laodicea seeing church going nowhere. We're a people. We're not going to say we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, but we know what we need. We need Jesus. We need the fire. We need intensity. We, and if we don't have it, we need to get it back in Jesus' name. Oh, hallelujah. I'm not here to beat anybody up here this morning, but if you're cold or if you're even lukewarm or you're indifferent or you're a, you know, I'm just a sunny morning saint or I'm just a revival Christian. I show up once a year when I hear we got special things going on around the church and there are spiritual gymnastics that are happening and the baptismal tank is alive on fire. That's when I'll show up. No, that's not the kind of church I'm preaching to here today. I'm preaching to a people that we're going to have some stick to It's called passion. It's called passion. And the world isn't looking for a church that is anemic and weak and quiet. The world is looking for a church that's on fire. Oh, hallelujah. God, give us that fire. God, give us this fire. I'm going to tell you a neat little story about Neil Diamond. I mean, seeing we're on this musical kick, I guess, with Tim McGraw. Neil, do you know, do you know, do you know that Neil Diamond went to a revival church? Neil Diamond performed on the Johnny Cash show where he explained, I'll, I'll quote him. He wrote a song called Brother Love's Traveling Salvation Show, which we're going to go way back in time. And some of you may know, not, know that, others of you may not know that. Neil Diamond, the famous singer, he said of Brother Love's Traveling Salvation Show, he said, this song was written about a revival meeting I was at in Jackson, Mississippi. Some of you, it doesn't mean anything, but it's going to mean something. In Jackson, Mississippi. I went there because I was curious and also because I was a college kid who, like all college kids, had all the answers. No one was going to teach me anything, and I could lay a, uh, a few answers on them. He said, I sat in the back of this tent meeting, and I got really caught up in the music, clapping, the singing, tremendously exciting. 
He said after a while, he, it's like he got into the groove. After a while, he said, I felt something about the people. There was a tremendous yearning, looking for answers. How many feel that way? Because that's what you find in a Pentecostal church. Thank God for it. He said, tremendously exciting. Neil Diamond's at this revival service, young college kid. He said, after a while, I felt something about the people. There was a tremendous yearning looking for answers. Trying to ease a very hard burden of very rough, rough lives. After a while, the music stopped and the preacher walked out. He said, I remember thinking that all the education I had, all the books, all the words, all the learning I went through at college didn't mean anything to these people, to which I would agree with the hearty amen. Neil Diamond said as a college student, he said, I, I had nothing for them. So I found myself pulling for this man who was about to give them something that I couldn't even begin to give them. And Neil Diamond goes to a UPC revival. The pastor was Pastor Tommy Kraft. Neil Diamond sat, at least for one point in his life, under the ministry of Pastor Tommy Kraft in a revival church and wrote a song called Brother Love's Traveling Salvation Show. What are you saying? I'm saying that a world going to hell needs a passionate revival church on its way to heaven. There needs to be a collision between a world that is empty and vacuous, meeting a church filled with people that are not filled with just lukewarmness about religion. This is weird, but I was, I was praying about it as service went on because you know what? We can be in such a dynamic environment week after week after week that it can become old hat and we can just get used to it and we're used to the move of God and we're used to anointed preaching and we're used to wonderful altar services and we're used to that tingle that moves up and down our spine that we can fall asleep in the greatest moments that could be happening on planet Earth. And I had to shake myself this Sunday morning and wake myself and realize that I've got a wonderful opportunity this morning again to experience God in my life and it's not old hat to me it's as beautiful as wonderful as the day that it happened in my life I'm talking about keeping the fire strong I'm preaching about passion this morning passion Passion, passion. Passion answers the question, do you care? And I think the Lord wants to know sometimes, do you care? Do I care? Do I care about my relationship with God? Do I care about the future of my family? Do I care about a world going to hell in a handbasket at warp speed? Do I care that my neighbors aren't saved? Do you care? Passion answers that question in the affirmative. Yes, I care. And I choose to care about the things that really matter. Passion. 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 One sociologist said, and I quote, we are caught up at a particular stage in our national ethos in which we're not only, and I think he's commentating on America, he said, we're not only materialistic, he said, but worse than that, he said, we're becoming emotionally dead as people. 
And this is what the sociologist said of American culture. He said, we don't sing, we don't dance. He said, we don't even commit sin with much enthusiasm. It's, it's, it's a lost world. So many in our world are just getting by. So many are just pining away the years. Uh, no heart passion, no enthusiasm. I think it's good for us every once in a while to stick a thermometer in our mouth. The right kind of thermometer. And uh, just, just find out what's my temperature, what's driving me, what do I think about constantly, what's on my mind when I go to bed at night, what do I read, what am I thinking about, what do I spend my spare time doing, what are my dreams, and, and the answer to these questions is going to answer what my passion is, Hallelujah. my passion, because laziness is darkness and inactivity is depressing but pursuing is powerful the misty cloud of meaninglessness dissipates when we passionately pursue and this is exactly what Solomon is trying to teach us influencing every page of Ecclesiastes it bleeds through you can't help but notice it every observation every verse they're the words of a bothered man. They're the words of a man that's simmering, a man that's seething. There must be more. We've got to figure this thing out. The clock is ticking. Life is passing me by. I've got to learn. I've got to grow. I've got to, I've got to get this thing figured out. That's what Ecclesiastes is telling us. Do you know that's probably the reason why a lot of people avoid this book? Because in some way, it's, it's some people get depressed by reading this book. You know why? Because it stirs them to thought. It stirs them to what is life all about? My life is going to be bookended at some point, and my life is going to come to an end. Need I repeat lesson number one of our series? We're all going to die. Isn't that exciting? Do you come to church to be excited? We're all gonna die. You're gonna die. I'm gonna die. We're all gonna die. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Well, it's true. It's true. It's true. But when you realize that, all that's what Solomon's saying in Ecclesiastes. When you realize that, you start thinking about it. The clock's ticking. The clock's ticking. Life is passing me by. I got a short little time period here to do something with what God's given me. It makes me be intriguing about life and think about life. What's it all about? It brings us to this single verse of Scripture. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, given the brevity of life, given the short window of time that we have on planet Earth. He said, here's my admonition. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. He said, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. I like these words, whatsoever. Somebody say whatsoever. I'm thankful for a real-life wise man that gave us tremendous insight. He, he, he dissipates with the ambiguity, okay, the confusion. He said, whatsoever. Look at your neighbor and say, don't complicate this thing. Don't complicate this 
don't, don't complicate this. He said, don't, don't get analysis paralysis. He said, whatsoever, whatsoever your hand finds to do. I know some of us want to float on, you know, it's church. Let's float on cloud nine. Let's talk about 22 gifts of the spirit. Let's, let's talk about something ethereal. Let's just talk about something non-pragmatic. Let's just talk about, no, let's, let's just do what Solomon did. Let's talk about something real. Whatever your hand finds to do. Let's get practical here. Whatever your hand finds to do. Come on, parents, aren't you thankful that you got some children that you, you some children that, that you can put your hand on their life and be a blessing to them? Whatever your hand finds to do. That 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 may mean Mary Lee, it's clothing, you know, putting your hand on clothing. Joe, it may Joe, where's Joe Stewart at? It it may mean medical equipment. I whatever your it's may it may mean a piano. It may mean a microphone. It but whatever whatever my hand finds to do, whatever I I've got this one thing called life, and I'm gonna be practical, and whatsoever my hand find, I, I, I I'm gonna involve myself in life. I'm not just going to be a bump on a pickle somewhere just biding the time. Whatever my hand finds to do. Oh, man, I, now I feel the Holy Ghost. 32 minutes in, I feel the Holy Ghost now. Now I feel the Holy Ghost. This is what he said. Do it with thy might. Do it with thy might. Put yourself into it. Put your bone and muscle and sinew and heart and vision and passion and life and what's percolating within you, this energy that everyone, spirit, what he put within us that gives us life and motion. He said, put your might into it furiously and feverishly and passionately with white heat. The bellows fanning the flame into a white heat. Mucho gusto, intensity, life. Do it with all thy might. Diligence, focus, meaning, passion, purpose. Whatever your hand finds to do. This guy's name is not Aki Bua. I'm into an Aki phase this morning. His name is Aki Ray. This is unintentional, by the way. He was a soldier in the brutal Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. And if you know anything about uh, those killing fields, it was, it was brutal. And he was uh, more or less forced to be a brutal soldier in, in this terrible war in Cambodia. And when the fighting actually stopped, it never did in his mind. The... the uh, Trauma that he'd endured in having to do some of the things that he did haunted him in his dreams, haunted him in his thoughts. And so, as a result of that, in the early 1990s, Aki Ray has taken it upon himself to demine areas of land with nothing but a stick and a pocket knife. From 1992 to 2007, he estimates that he has personally cleared over 50,000 mines with a stick and with a pocket knife. One man, 50,000 landmines. One man. 
His mission, because he had done so much damage in this life to so many people, the brutality that he had to experience, he made up his mind, whatever I put my hand to, and in his case, it was landmines. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be the anti-landmine person. After all the damage that I've done in my life, I want to make sure that the good I do eclipses the evil that I've done. I want to make sure that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds somehow or another. And oh, if somehow I could preach to the church this morning, whatever your hand finds to do. Oh, and somehow or another, we want all of the goodness in our life to outweigh the badness with the help of God. Amen? You know, a lot of people use the scripture um, that you reap what you sow is almost like a, you know, like a, a prophetic, um, and it is a warning, no doubt, but it's almost like something that hangs. You're going to reap what you sow. Don't you know you're going to reap what you sow? You know that stuff you've been in? We may warn our kids. You're going to reap what you sow. You do bad stuff, you're going to reap what you sow. And isn't it terrible that it's always viewed in a negative light? Can I also say, you're going to reap what you sow in a good way. In fact, let me go as far as to say this. There are people that have sowed a lot of bad seeds in their life. And thank God for repentance and thank God for water baptism. Thank God that the Lord can wash away the negative out of our life. But can I also say this? There can come a point in time that we sow enough good seeds uh, and you better stick around long enough to be able to harvest the, that, that harvest. But you can sow enough good seeds uh, that it overcomes the bad seeds that you sowed in your life. So that at the end of your life, there's more good than there is bad. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Praise God. What's in your hand? Exodus chapter 4 and 1. The Bible says, and Moses answered and said, but behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, the Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And you know the, the brilliant answer the Lord gave Moses? Verse number two, and the Lord said unto him, he didn't give him a brilliant theological treatise to give. He said, he asked this question, what is in thine hand? And he said, a rod. I, I mean, I need a rod. It's just, it's, just a, it's just a dead stick. It's just, but it's more than just the stick. It's multi-generational. Normally those sticks and those staffs were handed generation to generation. Perspiration polished. They had the patina of beauty that came from generations preceding them. And it didn't seem like much, but when he's standing at the Red Sea, he did not ask him what he did not have. Because when you're needing a miracle, it's not just what you don't have. Because God will often initiate and institute what you do have to perform the miracles that he wants to perform. We spend far too much time looking at what we don't have. I don't have this. I don't have this. Can't do this. Can't do that. I'm just little old me. Can't do this. Can't do that. And you know what God says? God says, what do you have in your hand? And he said, a rod. If you look later in the scriptures, you know what Moses' rod is called? Later in the scriptures, it's not called Moses' rod anymore. It's called the rod of God. Because when he instituted the gift that was put into his hands and he gave it to God, God said, guess what? It's in your hands. And if you've got passion to use it, God says, I can turn that into a miracle stick. And Charlton Heston years later, 
can be trying to replicate and duplicate what that miracle stick did. But he asked him for what do you have in your hand? It's not what you don't have. It's what you, it's what you do have. And the beautiful thing about the writer of Ecclesiastes, what did Solomon have in his hand? He had all kinds of stuff in his hand. He had Proverbs in his hand. He had Ecclesiastes in his hand. He had the kingdom of Israel in his hand. He had administrative giftings in his hand. He had a call to lead the people in his hand. It wasn't what he didn't have. It's what he did have. And so my question this morning is, what do you have in your hand? It might be a Sunday school lesson. You say, oh, it's not much. But oh, when it's given to God, I tell you what, a Sunday school lesson can produce wonderful results when the Lord is in it. They say, it's not too much. All I got is a prayer list in my hand. It's not, it's not much, but I tell you what, if it's in your hand and you give it to the Lord with passion and diligence, come on, somebody, then, then, then God, God can work through that. What do you have in your hand? That's why I try to make sure my grandson is in my hands as much as possible. What do you have in your hand? You got a guitar in your hands? Corey, you got a gear shifter in your hands? You say it's only a gear shifter. But it's, it's what God gave you. And Patrick is in church because a man with a gear shifter said, I'm going to give it to the Lord. I'm not just a truck driver. I'm a Christian truck driver. What do you have in your hand? You say, I don't have much. I, I, because I don't have much, I'm not going to do much with the little that I have. I might as well, you know, someday if I can acquire and someday if I can have what they have and someday if I get this or get that, then my life will be of consequence. And that's not how it works in God. What God wants to know is what do you have in your hand now? Maybe, Bob, it's a buffer. Maybe you got a buffer in your hand. Maybe you got a welded piece of, I mean, I, what I'm saying is this is practical. Whatsoever your hand findeth to do, uh, be a passionate person with a calling upon their life uh, that says, I'm going to do much good for the Lord. Amen. Tucker, you now have a youth group in your hand. Becca, you got a youth group in your hand right now. Blake, you got a hyphen group in your hand now. Mariah, you have a hyphen group in your hand. What are you saying? I'm saying stop limiting yourself. Stop saying what you don't have. There are some people that need to get out of their self-imposed exile. Because you think, I got to have this and I got to have that and I got to have this and I don't have this and I don't have that. When what you really need to do is say, what do I have in my hand? Because the writer said, whatsoever you have in your hand, he said, do it with thy might. I want to release somebody here this morning. God doesn't need star-studded charisma or talent. You know what he needs? He needs passion. He needs persistence. The Lord isn't just on a talent search, but I will say that he is on a passion search. He doesn't necessarily need just giftedness, but he needs people who deeply care. And I will say furthermore that the people that care, he will give giftedness. 
Because the Bible does talk about those that have talents and didn't use them. And God said, I got a problem with you because I gave you something and you didn't use it. As a matter of fact, I'm taking it from you that have it and, and not using it. And I'm going to give it to this guy that has it and uses it. Because what he's looking at is what is in my hand. I'm getting out of the cave in my life. I'm going to live passionately for the Lord because God has put some things in my life that I'm going to utilize for the Lord amen amen Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote that life as I quote action and passion and that quote it is required of a man that he should share the passion and action of his time at peril of being judged not to have lived he also wrote and I quote life is romantic business it's painting a picture, not doing a sum, but you have to make the romance and it will come to the question, how much fire you have in your belly. Plato wrote the first sentence of his famous Republic nine different ways before he was satisfied. Cicero practiced speaking before friends every day for 30 years to perfect his elocution. Noah Webster labored 36 years writing his dictionary, crossing the Atlantic twice to gather material. Milton rose at 4 a.m. every day in order to have enough hours for his paradise lost. Gibbon spent 26 years on his decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Bryant rewrote one of his poetic masterpieces 99 times before publication, and it became a classic. Da Vinci, to the closing moments of his life, carried with him, rolled up his, his beloved Mona Lisa, and he spent his entire life reworking that painting over and over again. Think with me this morning in the Christian context of David Livingstone, the pioneer missionary to Africa who walked over, they say, 29,000 miles he walked. His wife died early in their ministry and he faced stiff opposition from his Scottish brethren. He ministered half blind. His kind of perseverance inspires us all. And your challenge is remember the words in David Livingstone's diary. He said, and I quote, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever me from any lie, tie but the tie that binds me to your service and to your heart. And we wonder why David Livingstone's name is still in memory today what he did. It's called passion. I have in my Bible one of my original old Bibles from when I was first born again. And I've written in the covers of that Bible a poem that I quote to myself over and over and over again. And it says, I have no bow of burning brass to shoot my arrows of desire, yet I crave a life, O God, to transmit thy holy fire. I shall not cease from mental strife nor sleep with my pen in my hand till I have seen God's holy men arise and shake our needy land. I have no bow of burning brass to shoot my arrows of desire. Sometimes we're looking for talent when all God is looking for is passion. Do you have passion? Passion is dreaming in the night and working your vision in the day. Passion is acting on your caring. Passion is doing something about what you're passionate about. The pages of this Holy Bible are filled with great men and great women who God gave them a passion, God gave them a dream, and they did something about it. Noah built a ship, 
Abraham looked for a city. Jacob wrestled with angels. Isaac dug wells. Joseph dreamed. Miriam tambourined. David danced. Moses led. Solomon built. Isaiah prophesied. Barnabas helped. Tabitha sowed. Peter preached. Paul evangelized. Jeremiah cried. And Jesus died. Why? They were passionate. They were passionate. Stand together with me this morning. I want to challenge every child of God here together with me. Make your life count for God. Make your life matter. Ultimately, the greatest thing that we can do is honor God with our passion. Honor God with our diligence. And what do you say we give this one life that we have all the passion that it deserves? Passion for God. Passion for your work. You know that your work is your mission field? You may say, oh, it's my job. I just do it. I get, try to do it to get past it, to get to the real meat of life. I'm, I'm not going to go back to whatever it was three or four weeks ago, but we're going to spend tens of thousands of hours on our workplace. What a thing to be able to make a difference for God and be that passionate person there that's making a difference for him. Passionate in my family how about passion for personal development I'm not satisfied with where I'm at in life I'm still reaching you say pastor when does that ever end can I encourage you with that with an answer to that never because in the moment you stop reaching and growing is the moment that you really begin your descent into death because you know the truth of the matter is some people die and they get buried 30 years later we don't want that out of life we want to live. We want to live. We want to live. And I don't mean this just, you know, like a melancholy dirge to end this service with, but the song did say, live like you're dying. Because the end of this, what, what Solomon said in this single verse of scripture that we've spent time working around this morning, he said, and you may wonder quizzically, like, what did he mean? He said, for there is no work nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. And I've had to ask myself the question, what does that mean like in heaven that's not going to be? It's not. No, because remember, remember that Solomon is addressing, his address is under the sun. Under the sun. He's talking about here, this life. He's not talking about the afterlife. He's not talking about eternal life. He's talking about this life here and now. He said there's no work, device, knowledge, wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. If you'll allow me to do it like this, and if you'll allow me just to summarize it like this, I believe what he's saying is that there are things that you can do here that you can't do there. You get what I'm saying? Heaven's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be just incredible. But he said, whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all thy might. Here and now, under the sun. In other words, God gave us the beautiful gift of life. If it's three score and 10, or if by reason of strength, four score, I mean, that's, he's saying 70 or 80. He's saying by reason of strength, 80. I mean, if you, if you cross over that threshold, you can just say maybe super strength. I don't know what you want to say, but the blessing of God, all of that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a pretty brief period of time. But he's saying under the sun in this thing called life, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Live like you're dying. Make your precious Jesus-given life 
count. Make it count for God. What do you say, church? What do you say we do that together? I'm here to challenge you. I want to challenge individuals. Make your life count. I'm going to open these altars here this morning as they begin to sing and worship.